away from all his works, and in this place again they shall not enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it stands that some will surely enter into it, and they to whom it was first proclaimed entered not because of unbelief. Again, after so long a time, he appointed another day, as it is written above. For David said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your levenote, your heart. For if Yahushua, son of Nun, had given them rest, then would not afterward have spoken of another day? There remains, therefore, a Shabbat-keeping duty for the people of Eloah. For the one that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as Yahuwah did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that future Shabbat. Lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of Yahuwah is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing between the being and the ruach and between the joints and between the marrow and between the bone and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the lev, the heart. Verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we have to give an answer. Seeing then that we have a great Kohen Haggadol that is passed into the Shamaim, Yahusha, the son of Yahuwah, let us hold fast our confession. For if we have not a Kohen Haggadol who cannot be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses, but he was in all points tested as we are tempted. Yet he was without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the Kesei, the throne of favor, that we may obtain rachamin, mercy, and find favor to help in our time of need. It truly is a message to encourage the audience, to encourage the audience to press on because there is this pressure for them to go back to the temple system, to apostatize. They have this idea that they seem to think that they can walk away, hide back in the temple system so that they will not get persecuted. And then at a later time, they can come back and join the faith once the persecution has subsided. And as we will go on later in the next chapters, the author will tell them that you cannot... Once you've been enlightened, walk away from the promise and then return. He's telling them, you have to stay the course. And we all know that. How many of us, once we've come into this knowledge, if we had known how hard it would be, would we have still taken that step? And that's why the master says to the Talmudim, when they ask him, he says, come and you shall see. Because 
We have to take that step of faith to walk in what he will lay before us. Because oftentimes, if you and I knew how hard and pressing and trying it would be, we may not have the gevurah, the courage, to take the steps that we have. But now that we have taken those steps and we have changed our life, there is no going back. You cannot go back. We cannot go back. Because he who knows it is sin... To him it is sin. No matter how hard it is, no matter how alienated you may feel, you cannot go back now that you have the knowledge and the conviction in your life. There's no going back. The only way is forward or apostatizing. There is no compromise. There is no compromise. Now, the Christian community has traditionally interpreted chapter 4 as being a diatribe against the Sabbath. When in reality, this chapter can't be any further from that. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. That can't be further than the truth. As we'll discover through the scripture, and the context shall bear it out, any honest armchair scholar can tell that this is talking about Sabbath-guarding piety. What's really crazy is that the NIV Bible even entitles this section a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Go figure. And then they go into this long diatribe on why it's not about the Sabbath. Yet they entitle the section a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see, the reality is, is that the church is not at rest. It's not at rest. It's at work. The church, the modern western leg of the church is at work. It has no idea what rest is. And neither do its congregants, who can barely find the 75 minutes a week in their schedule to go to church. They can barely find that 75 minutes to attend. It's jettison the Sabbath, which has no part of church culture or practice. So the concept of rest is completely allegorized as a symbol for eternity with no current consequence or practice today. And that's how the church deals with Sabbath. It's completely allegorized away, spiritualized as some concept for eternity, and it has nothing to do with your life today because the church doesn't even recognize rest. It doesn't recognize rest. Our writer is building a case that Shabbat has past and present applications that believers are to implement into their piety, and it's called Shabbat-guarding piety, which modern translators didn't know what to do with, so they called it the God-fearers or God-fearing. Let's look at verse 9. Maybe turn my audio down just a little bit. I'm getting a bit of feedback up here. In verse 9, it says, There remains, therefore, a Shabbat-keeping duty, to the people of Eloah. Verse 9. There remains therefore a Shabbat keeping duty to the people of Eloah. 
Now, this is the only time in the New Testament where sabbatismos, the Greek word sabbatismos, is used. This is the only place in the whole New Testament. It's derived from another Greek word, sabbatizo, sabbatizo, and it means to keep Sabbath in the Septuagint. It means an active guarding of the Sabbath. It is not passive. It's an action. It's an active guarding of the Sabbath, and it comes from the Septuagint. Because the normal word for rest is another Greek word, katapulsis, and is deliberately absent from the text. Because this is not talking about rest. This is talking about guarding something. I'm being really picky now. I need a little bit more audio. I don't know what it is today. I must be in a very picky mood. Give me a little bit more volume. want that sweet spot. All about the sweet spot. I think this Greek word, sabbatismos, proves without a shadow of a doubt that Shabbat keeping is still very much a part of the believer's observant lifestyle. Now marry this, marry this Greek word with the linguistic textual proof with the context that's carried forward from Psalm 95, and it's a certainty. Because what is Psalm 95 all about? It's the Sabbath psalm that was sung in the temple on Sabbath. So the Greek word, the only time it's used in the whole of the New Testament talks about not rest, that would be another Greek word if they wanted it to be some spiritual allegorized rest that you need. They don't use that word. They use sabbatismos, which means Sabbath guarding duty is for all true believers. And if you're not sure of the linguistic context, then Psalm 95 cements the deal with the context that it is a Sabbath keeping psalm that was sung in the temple on the Sabbath. There is no way, if you are an honest Bible believer, that you can thought this text. You have to be literally a baby on spiritual milk to be able to say this is not about Sabbath. But if you have pressed on past the milk and you are wanting to mature as a believer... And you have to be honest with yourself and ask the simple question, why would they include the Greek word for Sabbath-guarding action and a Sabbath-guarding psalm in this very context if they wanted you to make it a spiritual allegory rather than a practical reality today because the spirit of compromise begins with spiritualizing and allegorizing away the Sabbath. That is the lukewarm of the western leg of the church. You see, we have to understand that we have the eastern leg of the church, which was at Constantinople and east, and then we have the western leg of the church, which is papal Rome that comes all the way over to us. And what you're going to see now, this spirit of 
compromise that has come into the church over the past 400 years, we are now going to see that this will actually spread to the Western nation. And I believe we are going to see the collapse of the Western nations and the elevation of the Eastern nations and its judgment consequence. And you're starting to see that now because the wealth, the oil, the gold, the money is on actually the Eastern nations have that power if they get out of the Western paper currency. And you will see the denigration of the West and the elevation of the East. And it is going to spew out those lukewarm believers in the West that are not zealous for Yahweh's word. So I think it's very important that we look at this chapter today because it's about those that are on fire for Yahuwah will see those that are compromising because it's all about Sabbath-keeping piety. So we see now the context of Psalm 95 must be carried forward with it into this, the Sabbath temple psalm, and what we are about to discover momentarily, and that we will stand, I believe, on the word, we will stand either convicted, and if you don't have the conviction, then you have to ask yourself the other question, what is your walk with Yahuwah like? Because if you can get through this teaching without conviction about Sabbath, then my question to you is, what is your walk with Yahuwah like? Simple. It truly is. So now we're going to see what each of us will choose to do with this knowledge. I believe we'll all be held accountable when we die to the knowledge of this very passage this very chapter. Even in early Christian literature, sabbatismos is used not to refer to the Sabbath day. Sabbatismos, it's not used to refer to the Sabbath day. But it's used to refer to Sabbath observance. The difference, it's action of the believer Sabbath observance or Sabbath celebration. Do you see the difference? It's not just the Sabbath day, this passive thing over here, but it's about Sabbath observance, meaning you are a part of it, an action, involved action, or even it's celebration. You're not separated from it off here to spiritually allegorize it away. You must be involved in it because truly the Sabbath is the sign, the mark of his people. Unless you don't believe in the Ten Commandments and then you've got a whole bigger problem. You see? Because it's not nine suggestions. It's Ten Commandments. How do we deal with these things? Let us see. But I would like to just spend a few moments, if you will, if you'll let me indulge you, indulge me. Let's sneak into the confessionary. Let's sneak into the Catholic confessionary. And we'll see what the Catholics say about Sabbath. Let's use the very words of the Catholics, their very testimony, to find if we are on par or not. So we'll start off with James Cardinal Gibbons. 
This is from the book, The Faith of Our Fathers. Quote, But you may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday, a day which we never sanctify. This is from the Catholics. Is Saturday the seventh day according to the Bible and the Ten Commandments? I answer, yes. Is Sunday the first day of the week? And did the church change the seventh day, Saturday, for Sunday, the first day? I answer, yes. Did Christ change the day? I answer, no. That's a Catholic confessional. So unless you're a Catholic, what are you doing? We have no excuse. This is from the Catholic Virginian, October the 3rd, 1947. It's from the article, To Tell You the Truth. Quote, For example, nowhere in the Bible do we find that Christ or the apostles ordered that the Sabbath be changed from Saturday to Sunday. We have the commandment of God given to Moses to keep holy the Sabbath day. That is the seventh day of the week, Saturday. Today, most Christians keep Sunday because it has been revealed to us by the Roman Catholic Church outside of the Bible. Now, this is from Martin J. Scott, Things Catholics Are Asked About, 1927, this article was written. Quote, Nowhere in the Bible is it stated that worship should be changed from Saturday to Sunday. Now, the church instituted by God's authority Sunday as the day of worship. This same church, by the same divine authority, taught the doctrine of purgatory long before the Bible was made. We have, therefore, the same authority for purgatory as we have for Sunday. Did you catch that? If you're going and keeping Sunday as the day of rest, then you better start living a life as if you're going to purgatory. You may as well just be a Catholic. This is from the Catholic confessionary. This from Peter R. Kramer, Catholic Church Extension Society, 1975. Quote, regarding the change from the observance of the Jewish Sabbath to the Christian Sunday, I wish to draw attention to the facts. One, that Protestants who accept the Bible as the only rule of faith and religion should by all means go back to observance of the Sabbath. The fact that they do not, but on the contrary observe Sunday, stultifies them in the eyes of every thinking man. And two, we Catholics do not accept the Bible as the only rule of faith. Besides the Bible, we have the living church, the authority of the church as a rule to guide us. We say this church, instituted by 
Christ to teach and guide man through life has the right to change the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament and hence we accept her change of the Sabbath to Sunday. We frankly say, yes, the church made this change. Yes, the church made this law. Yes, she may preside over many other laws. For instance, the Friday abstinence, the unmarried priesthood, the laws concerning mixed marriages, the regulation of Catholic marriages, and a thousand other laws. It always seems laughable to see the Protestant churches in the pulpit and in legislation demand the observance of Sunday, of which there is nothing in their Bible. They mock you, you fools. This is an embarrassment to every Bible-believing Protestant minister and every Bible-believing student out there. Be honest with yourselves. You should be ashamed of yourselves and outraged. I am. Either be hot for Yahweh your Elohim or get off the pot. And I know that's crass, but I am so sick of the compromise and lukewarm that goes down the generation. Stand up, be a man for righteousness, because the Sabbath is a sign. If you want to witness, just stand up and say why you aren't doing things that everything in the culture says that you should do. Just one day a week. Just one day a week sacrifice, a living sacrifice. But no, you'll compromise and excuse away your life. And I know I'm passionate, but this being mocked infuriates me. If somebody had told me this 15, 20 years ago, it would have saved me a bunch of wasted, wasted theology. If somebody could have said, the Catholics are mocking you. And I'm not against the Catholics. At least they're being true to their religion. And they are admitting it. The joke is on the Protestants who were protesting Catholicism. But you didn't protest the Sabbath. Why not? Because you didn't have access to the manuscripts and textual evidence that you had today. We do not have the excuses of our forefathers in the 1560s. We have access to the internet where you can find out truth and a bunch of lies and propaganda too. But if you are discerning, you have access to the available manuscripts. We are without excuse, and we will be held accountable for the compromise of our lives. Very sobering, very sobering. This is from T. Enright in a lecture at Hartford, Kansas, on February the 18th, 1884. Quote, again, this is from a Catholic. I have repeatedly offered $1,000. $1,000 in 1884 was a lot of money. I have repeatedly offered $1,000 to anyone who can prove to me from the Bible alone that I am bound to keep Sunday holy. 
There is no such law in the Bible. It is the law of the Holy Catholic Church alone. The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Catholic Church says, no, by my divine power, I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep holy the first day of the week. And lo, the entire civilized world bows down in a reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. Now let's go and sneak into the Protestant confessional. And let's see what the Protestants say. So this is the Protestants, because what we have to realize is many of the pastors out there, they know the truth, but they're not willing to step up and tell the congregants the truth because they know that it will cause such mayhem and that they will lose their ministries. I've spoken to pastors. They know the truth, but they are not willing to teach the congregants the truth for fear of losing the ministry. This is from Canon Eaton, the Ten Commandments. Quote, There is no word, no hint in the New Testament about abstaining from work on Sunday. Into the rest of Sunday, no divine law enters. The observance of Ash Wednesday or Lent stands exactly on the same footing as the observance of Sunday. If you're going to go and observe Sunday as a day of rest, then be consistent with your Bible hermeneutics and start keeping Ash Wednesday and Lent too. Then at least you'd be honest and consistent with your interpretation of Scripture. But you don't see that with Protestants. Be consistent. Be honest. But people aren't. This is from Dr. Edward T. Hiscox, and this was a paper that was read before a New York Ministries conference, November 13, 1893. And this was reported in the New York Examiner on November the 16th, 1893. Quote, There was and is a commandment to keep holy the Sabbath day. But that Sabbath day was not Sunday. It will be said, however, that with some show of triumph, that the Sabbath was transferred from the seventh to the first day of the week. Where can the record of such a transaction be found? Not in the New Testament. Absolutely not. To me, it seems unaccountable that Jesus, during three years of intercourse with his disciples, often conversing with them upon the Sabbath question, never never alluded to any transference of the day. Also, that during 40 days of his resurrection life, no such thing was intimated. Of course, I quite well know that Sunday did come into use in early Christian history, but what a pity it comes branded with the mark of paganism. It comes branded and christened with the same name as the sun god, And it was adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to Protestantism. This was in 1893. This one from D.L. Moody. We've heard of D.L. Moody in the article Weighed and Wanting. Quote, the Sabbath was binding in Eden and it has been in force ever since. 
This fourth commandment begins with the word remember, showing that the Sabbath already existed when God wrote the law on the tablets of stone at Sinai. How can men claim that this one commandment has been done away with when they will admit that the other nine are still binding? Now, some people will brush off everything that I've just spoken of, and they'll keep trekking on, and they continue to keep the Protestant Sabbath. And then others will be convicted to the core and say, I can't do this anymore. That is the marking of Yahweh's calling out a righteous remnant to the religious traditions of the generations. That's the difference. There's always been religious people. But there are few righteous people. And the Sabbath is the mark of calling out his people to righteousness. Not religion, but righteousness. And that is a conviction of the heart that you can't do it anymore. You cannot compromise. No matter what the cost, no matter what you have to stand up for, you go into this book alone to get your rule of life. You see, the problem is the Western church has become antinomian meaning anti-against the law. The Western church has become antinomian. Well, if that's the case, then the Western church has become, in fact, amoral and says that Yahuwah is amoral. Because if you get rid of his Torah, you get rid of the morality, the heart of the Creator. You see? And that's the problem with society. It is amoral. And the boundaries have been broken down. Because if the church is antinomian, then it is serving an amoral God. Because all of his attributes, all of his laws and morality are contained in the nomos, the law, the Torah. But what about Yahusha and the Sabbath? Many will charge Yahusha this. Well, Yahusha broke the Sabbath. He told a man to carry his bed on the Sabbath day. His disciples, they plucked grain on the Sabbath. They broke the Sabbath because they plucked grain on the Sabbath. He worked, he healed people on the Sabbath. So he sets our example. You'll hear that excuse. It's a very feeble excuse, but you will hear that trotted out. But we know what Yahusha said in Matthew 5.17. Think not that I came to weaken or destroy the Torah or the Nevim, the prophets. I have not come to weaken or destroy, but to completely reveal it in its intended fullness. For truly I say to you, until the current Shamaim, heavens and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall by any means pass from the Torah until all be fulfilled. Whoever therefore shall break or weaken one of the least Torah commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called pastor least in the kingdom of heaven. That's very sobering. Very sobering. 
But whoever shall do and teach the commands, that same shall be called great in the Malchut HaShamayim, kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, except your zadakar, your righteousness shall exceed the zadakar, the righteousness of the Sofrim and Prushim, the scribes and the Pharisees. You shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it's very important how you interpret the scriptures because it could infect affect, excuse me, your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now, these charges that are often laid out on the western leg of Christianity against Yahusha, saying, well, he broke the Sabbath, carrying a bed and healing is not breaking the Sabbath. What is that? It's about the preservation of life, the principal commandment of Scripture that trumps all other commandments. Preservation of life. It's about preservation of life. It's not a transgression of the Sabbath to preserve life. If you're an ER doc and somebody is bleeding in the street, are you going to walk past them or are you going to get to work on the Sabbath and do your job to preserve their life? Right? That's it. That's what, that's what he did. He was the great physician and he did. He went about his father's work on the Sabbath, which was healing. Pick up your bed and walk and sin no more. And anyway, then there's the charge. Well, his disciples, they plucked grain on the Sabbath. And these charges come from people not knowing the Torah. In the Torah, it says, you now shall not take a sickle to the standing grain. That's harvesting. But plucking off the grain as you go through the field, that's for nutrition. You're not working. So they didn't transgress the Sabbath because they were not harvesting with a sickle and threshing. You see, it's a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding. Plucking the grain for personal sustenance, again, it was about preservation of life just as a doctor helping someone. But let's look now to the testimony of St. Paul. The Apostle Paul. Everybody loves Paul. Let's see what Paul was up to on Sabbath. It's very telling. Maaseh Lechim, the Acts of the Apostle, the 24th chapter, the 14th verse. So, so far, we are looking at Hebrews chapter 4. We've seen the Greek word sabbatismos. It doesn't just mean Sabbath. It means Sabbath guarding, Sabbath celebration, meaning you have to have an active participant, be an active participant of Sabbath. Then the context of Psalm 95 is carried forward into the context of Hebrews. The context of Psalm 95, it's a Sabbath-keeping psalm that's sung in the temple on the Sabbath. So the context and the language bear up Sabbath-keeping piety is for the believer today in Yahusha. Then we looked at the confessionals of the Catholics. The Catholics confessed. They absolutely confessed. They put it out in publications. The Catholic Church changed the Sabbath from Shabbat to Sunday. They're bold about it. They proclaim it with pride. It's the papal directive. Then we look at Protestant confessions from the 19th century and they boldly say to, yes, the Catholics changed the Sabbath from Shabbat to Sunday 
And if you're going to keep Sunday, you may as well keep Lent and you may as well keep Ash Wednesday. We've looked at Yeshua. What did he do on the Sabbath? He guarded the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. His disciples, they plucked grain, but they didn't harvest. So, so far, we are consistently seeing that Sabbath-keeping observance is for the children of Yahuwah today. But now let's go to Paul, because people use Paul to say many things because he is hard to understand, and they twist his words for their own destruction. But let's look at his life, let's look at his testimony, and let's see if the Apostle Paul kept the Sabbath or if he was doing some Catholico types of things. Acts chapter 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the Elohim of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the Torah and in the prophets. So Paul's admitting, whatever the prophets wrote, I believe it. Believe is action, do. Whatever's written in the Torah, I believe it. Action, I do it. So far, we're on track with Sabbath-keeping piety. Nothing afoot here. Now we go to Acts chapter 25 and verse 8, and we find, And while he answered for himself, neither against the Torah of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. So he hasn't transgressed the Sabbath, because if he had transgressed the Sabbath, what I just read you would not be his testimony. So, so far, we're right on track with Sabbath-keeping piety with St. Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now, unless, of course, Rav Shaliak Shaul was lying here, and he, we know that's not true, we're right on track with what the Old Testament writers taught. But what about the New Testament? The disciples kept the Sabbath day 84 times in the book of Acts. How do you deal with that? 84 times the disciples are keeping the Sabbath in the book of Acts. Do you want to be a disciple of the Master? Do you call yourself a disciple of the Master? Well, then do what the disciples did. It's recorded right there for you, 84 times in the Acts of the Disciples, the Acts of the Apostles, 84 times. Gentiles and Jews, what did they do? They kept the Sabbath together, Shabbat keeping piety in the congregations. Acts 18 verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So after the resurrection, many years after the resurrection, we've got Jews and Greeks, not just Jews. It's not for the Jews. It's for all believers to come together at the synagogue on Sabbath and celebrate it actively, purposely together. Then we go to the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. We go to the 9th verse and we read, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to Yahuwah. 
but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols, from fornication, and from things strangled in blood. For Moses of old times hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. These are the four commandments that are given to new believers so that you can have fellowship. Abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. That means worship Yahuwah the way that Yahuwah wants to be worshipped. If you syncretize and you get into Christmas and all the pagan nonsense, then Yahuwah views that worship as meat sacrificed to an idol, a goat demon, a satar. And your prayers would come under the falling of Amos chapter 5. Abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. Worship Yahweh the way that he wants to be worshipped. Abstain from things strangled in blood. Meaning, you have to refer to Leviticus chapter 11 and you eat according to the scripture. Very simple. When you come together and you have oneg and you bring food, bring clean animals and make sure that they're slaughtered biblically. You don't want to strangle the animal and bring it in. There'll be blood in the meat. These are just simple things that when you come as a new believer, a neophyte, that you come in to the assembly. Abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. Abstain from strangling and blood. Abstain from sexual immorality and fornication. Meaning that you can't have sexual immorality in amongst the congregation. There's got to be holy, righteous living. And of course, you'd go to the Torah and you would look how Yahweh calls his people to live in their lifestyle. These are very important things. And the last commandment, the fourth commandment is go to the synagogue on Shabbat because you'll hear Moses taught. And that's when you'd get the rest of the instruction over due course. But we're not going to throw on you a whole bunch of commandments to overwhelm you. Just keep these four simple commandments and the Holy Spirit will then lead you as you hear the reading of the Torah over each successive Shabbat. This is the way that the new believer is to come into the faith. Worship Yahweh the way Yahweh wants to be worshipped, with his Sabbaths and his festivals. That's it. Don't compromise, don't syncretize, and take on a bunch of Catholico. Stay simple. The next thing to do is abstain from meat that has been strangled and in blood. Meaning, eat the way the Bible says to eat, so that you have health and you don't offend other people, that you can have fellowship. Have sexual purity. Be holy people, not whoremongers, not into pornography, not into those despicable things that the nations do. You are to be holy, set-apart people, and the marriage bed is supposed to be undefiled. Hebrews speaks about that. Stay holy. And then finally, come back each and every Sabbath. Listen to Moses, and you'll learn a whole bunch more. But these four things are so pressing that we have to say that we cannot have fellowship with you unless you do these four things. Otherwise, we'll have a mutiny. And this was how the faith was established. It's loving. It's merciful. It's kind. You've not got this whole big list of things that you've got to agree to and sign on to. Just four simple things. If we do these things together, we can grow together in harmony. 
It's amazing. But now let's get back to the text. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, while the promise of entering into his rest remains, lest any of you should seem to come short of it. For it was to us the Besora proclaimed, as well as to them. But the word proclaimed did not profit them, since it was not mixed with emunah, faith, in them that heard it. For we who have believed do enter into the rest, as he has said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. For behold, the works were finished from the foundation of the olam, this world. Now the rest that he speaks of here in verse 3 is the creation rest. These believers, they must exercise and continue to exercise faith to enjoy what this rest has to offer. Yahweh has possessed this rest since when? He's possessed this rest since creation. And it's been available to all of us if we'll just cease long enough from striving so that we can actually possess it. But that's the problem. People don't cease long enough from striving so that they can possess it. We live in a generation now when, where 11 to 16-year-olds have more anxiety, more emotional and mental problems than any other generation known to man. This generation of teenagers are more emotionally, spiritually bankrupt than any other generation because the boundaries in this country have been dissolved since they, before they were born. They have grown up in a generation where if there is a boundary in their generation, they see it dissolve. They have no boundaries. What little boundaries they have are in the family and even the patriarch of the family isn't sure of the boundaries unless they are on fire and zealous. And then that's a different, that's a different dynamic. But it's very, we've seen it. It's very few men that are on fire and zealous. It's more the women, to tell you the truth. I've seen more righteous women out there over the years that I've been teaching the word than I have seen righteous men. And that is very, very sad. And when you do see a righteous patriarch, then that's powerful. That's super powerful. But there are more righteous women out there than I, I have seen. And more wayward men. And that's a sad commentary on the emasculated males in the Western society. Why? Why are the youth so troubled? Because they are striving and they never enter into rest. They are striving. Everybody's striving and they will never attain what they, will what they are striving for. And it causes anxiousness. It causes depression. It causes oppression and then demonic possession. Because you open up the portals. It 
It's available to all of us, this creation rest, if we will just enter into it by ceasing to strive so that we can possess it. Ceasing to strive so that we can possess it. Verse 4 of chapter 4. For he spoke in a certain place of the Sabbath in this manner, and Eloah did rest on the Sabbath day from all his works. And in this place again, they shall not enter into my rest, seeing therefore it stands that some will surely enter into it, and that they to whom it was first proclaimed entered not because of unbelief. Those in history were to enter this rest, but they failed. Yahuwah still desires to fulfill his plan, and so he appointed what? He appointed another day when the invitation is given out to be theirs. And that other day is today if you hear his voice. Because they didn't enter in, he's offering that rest to you and I in this generation if we will cease from striving to possess it. And that's the problem. Because that takes what? A ceasing and a maturity. A ceasing and a maturity. His plan has always been for us to possess it. He's appointed another day when the invitation is given out in theirs and our final generation before the destruction of the culture when all offers for rest will be swept from the master's table. The writer of the book of Hebrews, he's communicating to the audience this rest is available to you now. The generation in the wilderness, they rejected it. And that generation did not enter into his rest. And that generation physically came under judgment and they died. They died. Likewise, you, audience of the book of Hebrews, around 67 of the common era, the temple's about to be destroyed. You must enter into this rest right now. Cease from striving and enter in and possess it because if you don't, this offer of rest will be withdrawn from the table and you will face judgment and physical destruction with the generation of Jews in Jerusalem that has rejected it. Likewise, we are in a parallel universe. This offer of rest is being offered to this generation. This generation today has heard more about the Sabbath than any generation since the first century. Even more than the 19th century Seventh-day Adventists, Ellen G. White. This generation more so, but... If you reject his rest because you continue to strive, then the offer will be will taken off the table and you likewise will face the judgment that is coming on this generation. Again, I've told you, a 40-year judgment from the Iranian revolution because we're going to see, I believe, this Western culture collapse and the Eastern culture rise up with power as you see in the book of Revelation. So we have limited time to take the land and possess it. 
Verse 7, again, after so long a time, he appointed another day as it is written above. For David said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your leaven. When I'm going to sleep at night, I am dreaming this verse. I've said it so much over the past month. I don't, it's just amazing. It's, just, it's truly a, a life, become a life verse for me. I go to bed and I dream this verse. Today, it means so much to me. Today, if you hear his voice, you, have, you can instantly change your life. But you've got to stop from striving. You've got to turn off that internet. You've got to take those tickets and throw them in the trash. Because you know what? The invitation of pigskin and spandex and muscled men is going to lead you down to the way of destruction. But I want my pigskin, spandex, and muscled men. I don't want the Shabbat. That is the effeminized male right there. Right? Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. For if Yehoshua, Joshua, son of Nun, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. Joshua didn't bring the children of Israel to the rest of spiritual maturity. The land of Israel was never at full rest because of this. We, like our audience, are the recipients of that offer today, if only we will take hold of it. Verse 9, therefore remains therefore a Sabbath-keeping duty to the people of Elohim. For the one that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as Yahuwah did from his. Let us strive. Let us strive, therefore, to enter into the future Shabbat, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of Yahuwah is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing between the being and the ruach, and between the joints and the marrow and the bone. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is therefore any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things, they are naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we have an answer. Verse 11, the author exhorts his audience to strive. But I thought you said don't strive. But what does he say to strive for? The Greek word here is spousa, and it means to make every effort to enter into his rest. That's what you strive for. Not the things of the world, Cease from striving from them, but strive for one thing, to enter into his rest. It means this isn't a passive act of coming into spiritual enlightenment, but to be conscientiously, 
but to be conscientiously discharging an obligation to Yahuwah. We have to conscientiously discharge the obligation that we have to him. It's an obligation. We have to conscientiously do it. Because the world is going to want to make you and I lukewarm. To come in those thorns and briars and all the cares of the world and, and, and take it away. And they're used, those that are striving, to come in and rob you and I of the rest. They will. Oh, I've been at war all week in my job because of the cares of the world and the thorns trying to come in. And I'm literally just hacking away, keeping them from coming on me. Because you know what? That's their choice. That's why they have all this drama, because of their striving. But I'm like, I've got my eye on Erev Shabbat. I've got my eye on Shabbat keeping piety. Because that's what I'm going to strive for. And guess what? We're all here. We made it. And we have peace today. I'm serious. There were points during the week. I'm like, now my arm didn't go numb, did it? From the stress? Seriously. What a world that we're at battle against. The author exhorts us to spouse or to strive to make every effort to enter his rest. This is not passive. It's not to come into spiritual la-di-da agreement, but it's to be conscientiously discharging an obligation to Yahuwah, to be zealous, to be eager, and to take pains and every effort to make every effort. We're challenged to look at all the different aspects of Shabbat, not to discard the practical in place of the spiritual, but in maturity, find meaning and application in all. The word spouso really does give a sense of urgency and eagerness to the audience. And our author knows, he knows, he knows the purpose of the word of Yahuwah is to do what? The purpose of the word of Yahuwah is to test us and it's to try us. Many in our author's day, they were at the Greek gymnasiums. They were involved in all of that just as many in our day are chasing the spandex, the muscled men and the pigskin. And I know I say that jokingly, but it truly is. It's the same thing as that. That's why they brought the gymnasiums into Jerusalem. We have to understand that is why there is such. Why do colleges get more money for their football and sports program while arts and academia do not get funded? How did the Elizabethans, how did the Elizabethans go and conquer the world? Because when they took over countries, do you know what they invested in? Art and culture. Because if you can invest in art and culture, then you can export your culture to the culture that you've conquered. That's why there was the huge library in Alexandria. And what do you see that ISIS and Islam do when they go into foreign cultures? What do they destroy first? The art and the culture. Because then they can enslave the people. 
There is no art and culture in gymnasiums and American football and all of these sports. It is devoid of that to enslave the people and emasculate the men. When they should really, all that zeal, all that rah, 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 should be cause you should be on fire guarding your family, guarding the next generation and guarding your posterity. That's where all that righteousness, all that natural zeal and power and testosterone should go. In guarding your posterity by making this righteous generation by the power of the word of Yahuwah. Because that's true strength. That's true, true character when there's so much at stake today. And our, our author, he understood this. Because many in our author's day, like I said, they were at the Greek gymnasiums and they were forming alliances with the financial Roman order. And today we have no different with men doing the same thing and forming alliances with the new world order's financial system. And it's really a sad tale of a compromised life that's reflected in each and every successive generation that our author was addressing. Unbelief will not go undetected. The strive is because detection for failure will be conducted by me? No. By you? No. But by the word of Yahuwah. The word of Yahuwah will, is a detection device for failure. It will detect your failure and unbelief and hopefully convict you before the offer is withdrawn from the table. I can't tell you personally in my life how many times I have been given opportunities since I became converted where I knew. my life, The fact that I have the honor and privilege of teaching before you today is because I recognized one of many times, and this was the first time, and since then I've been always alert, that offers will be given and that if you do not accept those offers, they will be permanently withdrawn from the table and they will be offered to another. I was given the offer to stand up and teach the word of Yahuwah when I was 24 years old, terrified and scared. And I did not want to do it before a congregation of 500 I'd only been converted a few weeks, but apparently my testimony so impacted the pastor that he said, I need you to come before the congregation on Sunday and tell me, tell them what you have just told me. And I felt sick to my stomach. There is no way. I'd only been to, the, I'd only been to that church once. There is no way. Everything in my flesh said no way. But I know I was convicted this is a one-time offer, and if you deny me now, then I will deny you before men, and I will pass over you and pick another. And from that moment on in my life, I've always said yes. No matter how scared I've been, I've said yes, because then the fear is overcome, and the next thing you know, you can stand up and rattle on before people, and it doesn't bother you. So that's a testimony to him. <laughs> My wife was in the bathroom being sick. She was so nervous the first time I told her. She's like, I don't know what he's going to say up there. 
And she still does today. <laughs> I love the way the author chronicles the word of Yahweh. Let's look at the five ways he chronicles the word of Yahweh. I mean, it is powerful. There's so many words out there today, but none come close to the power of the word of Yahweh. He chronicles the word of Yahweh in five ways. Number one, it is living. Number two, it is active in you and I's life. We all know this, don't we? I mean, it is living. Number one, it's living. Number two, it is active. It's meaning. It's powerful. The Greek word here is energies, where we get energy from. Number three, it is sharper. It's incisive. It's the sharpest of arms. It's the sharpest of arms. And number four, it's piercing. And when it says it's piercing, it means it's step through piercing. You know, it's step through piercing. It's going to pierce through, step through penetration. So much so that it can actually decipher between soul and spirit. The word of Yahuwah can decipher between soul and spirit. two facets of the immaterial part of man. Think about that for a minute. The word is able to pierce and penetrate and discern even the believer's soul and spirit. It convicts, it condemns, it heals, and it enlightens. My first experience with the word of Yahuwah and its power, 24 years old, given a Bible as a wedding gift. Living in sin, unconverted, a total evil man. It convicts me so much that I throw it on the floor and I dance around it mockingly. And I say to Tamara, what are we going to do with this? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, I feel weird having it in our apartment, don't you? She's like, well, kind of. Shall we get rid of it? Well, we can't because when the guy comes around who gave it to us, he's going to see it's not here. Can't we put it in the basement in storage? And then when he comes around, we'll just bring it out. It makes me feel weird. That's the power of the word convicting a man living in sin. That's crazy power. And if you want to test out the power... Just start quoting Bible verses in front of the heathen. They freak out. Gets very uncomfortable. You want to quieten a room down, just start speaking the word. I mean, people, what what are you doing? You can't do that. Yes, I can. I tried it this week. Very interesting stuff. (laughs) Number five, it's quick to discern. It's quick to discern discrimination. It can discern. There's discrimination and judgment. The Greek word is kritikos, where we get the word critic. The word is critical to the point it can discern between our thoughts 
and the intents of our heart. How many of you, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm thinking of doing something. It's self-serving. I get into the Word and I'm totally convicted of how dreadful I am. Right, well, I can't do that. I was about to do something yesterday, but the night before we prayed, my wife and I, we got up from prayer and I'm like, I don't think I can do that. I think I should do this. And she's like, that came to me too in prayer. Right there, in unity. The same thing. Because the word of Yahweh got into our thoughts and discerned our thoughts and our hearts and brought us out of prayer in total unity with his word and thoughted a very bad decision that I was going to make. It's alive in our life each and every moment. There is no obstacle too grand for you when you're dealing with society and humans that have caught up their lives in striving and have become affected by the culture, the power of the word of Yahweh in your life because you choose not to strive for that but to strive for this is a powerful testimony. That's our hope. That's what carries us through. Look at verse 14. Having then that we have a great Kohen Haggadah, high priest, that is passed into the heavens, Yahusha, the son of Yahuwah. Let us hold fast our confession, for we have not a Kohen Haggadah, a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses, but he was in all points tested as we are tempted, yet he was without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the Kese, the throne of favor, that we may obtain rachamin, mercy, and find favor to help in our time of need. Now, in verse 14 onward through chapter 9, our author begins with references to Yahusha being the high priest. Our author is now going to start addressing the third pillar of Judaism, the Levitical priesthood. Yahushua's high priestly ministry is the guarantee, is the guarantee that Yahuwah and Yahuwah's people will celebrate the Sabbath in his presence. One day we will celebrate the Sabbath in his presence. We have to understand the people had a great respect for the priests. They had a great respect for the priests at the time of this writing, but they had little or no respect for the high priest at the time of this writing. Using five disparities between the Levitical and the Malkitzedic, our author is going to finish by communicating the Malkitzedic superiority. Let's look at these five disparities between the Levitical and the Malkitzedic priesthood. Number one, Yahusha, he has a better position. Number two, he is a better priest. And number three, this priesthood, it's based upon a better covenant. And number four, it's based upon a better sanctuary. And number five, 
It's based upon a much better sacrifice. Verse 14, having then that we have a great Kohen Haggadah. In the Greek text, having is emphatic and it emphasizes a continuous availability. Whereas the Levitical high priest, was he continuously available to you? No, but once a year. But we have him who is continuously available to us, unlike the once a year Levitical high priest. Touched. The Greek word here means to have sympathy and to cry and suffer along with. There is no other God in all the world's religions who can lay claim to such a metrical empathy for the sons of men that he cries for us and he suffers along with you and I. He was in all points tested as we are tempted. He was tested in the areas that we are tempted. But we know that he wasn't tempted because James says that Elohim cannot be tempted. In fact, John, excuse me. 1 John 2.16, it is written... For all that is in this world, the olam hazer, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of Abba, but is of this world. So every type of temptation that we face today, it's going to fit in one of these three categories. Everything you and I have to face, everything you and I have to be zealous to overcome, is going to fit into one of the, these three categories. And none of you are exempt. None of you are exempt. After Yahusha had been in the wilderness for 40 days without food, Esetan approached him with what? A test. And what was the first test that Yahusha faced? The lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Would he use his power for self-gratification? And turn those stones into bread. Then Yahushua was shown what? A satanic vision of the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And finally, Yahushua was placed upon the temple pinnacle. And Satan said, if you really are the son of Yahuwah, prove it by throwing yourself down. Psalm 91, of course, promises that angels will catch you. The final test is the pride of life. These are our areas that we will be tested. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He was tested in all areas that we are tempted but if we strive, we will overcome. And that's what our life testimony is to be. The ones that are the overcomers. And this message to the Hebrews was edifying to them in a time of great trial. When they were tempted to draw back 
They are being admonished to push forward and to strive for the word of Yahuwah, the great discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart that can divide, pierce, marrow, and push through. But they must strive for righteousness in a degrading society because judgment's coming. I believe we live in a parallel universe. And I see a whole culture of teenagers that are in so much pain, that are so lost because they are striving. They have no boundaries. What religious boundaries they have, they don't even understand them because like we see, the religious boundaries from the Western Christian church are built upon the Catholic church and they are crumbling before their very eyes. It's going to take a patriarch or a matriarch to rise up in their life, grab them by the hand and say, strive for righteousness. But you have got to get rid of the effeminized American male to be able to do that. It's a huge responsibility, but it's a huge calling. Blessings, questions, comments. I'm so excited and so privileged just to be able to teach and speak his word. It truly is a blessing. Anyone? Let's close in prayer. Abba Yahweh, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for prayer. And we thank you so much for worship. We pray that you would truly call us on to the goal that we would strive to perfection in the word of Yahweh in our lives and to our posterity. In Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. Amen.